It's Thursday, May 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. House Republicans have voted to remove Representative Liz Cheney from her post as conference chair. This comes after backlash over her continued criticism of former President Trump. With this vote, it illustrates that Republicans think the only way to winning majorities in Congress is with Trump as their leader. Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill, joins us for all the fallout. Next, the East Coast is dealing with the effects of the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack. But these types of hacks are affecting others as well. Another ransomware gang just leaked sensitive personnel files from the D.C. Metro Police Department. Information such as social security numbers, psychological assessments, and more have been released after a $4 million ransom was not paid. Dan Gooden, security editor at Ars Technica, joins us for more. Finally, a new study is pointing to MDMA as a possible new treatment for those suffering from PTSD. In a recent 18-week trial, participants were given three doses of MDMA, which was followed up with one-on-one therapy. In almost all cases, this treatment was significantly more effective than those that got placebos. Jeffrey Kluger, editor-at-large for Time Magazine, joins us for the promise of MDMA in treating post-traumatic stress disorder. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I uh, will do uh, everything I can to ensure uh, that uh, the former president never again gets anywhere near the Oval Office. We have seen the danger Uh, that he continues to provoke with his language. Uh, We have seen his lack of commitment and dedication to the Constitution. Uh, And I think it's very important that we make sure whomever we elect is somebody who will be faithful to the Constitution. Joining us now is Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Julia. Thank you for having me. Well, we saw this coming. House Republicans ousted Representative Liz Cheney as Republican conference chair. She was the number three Republican in the House. They voted her out of that role. And, uh, you know, this is just after months of kind of the backlash over her criticisms of former President Trump talking about the uh, stolen election, all leading up to January 6th with the rioters on Capitol Hill. So, Julia, uh, uh, tell us kind of what this whole thing signifies for the Republican Party right now. Well, I think right now it signifies that President Trump is absolutely the de facto leader and that Republican lawmakers feel that they are beholden to him. You know, just a couple of months ago after that attack on Capitol Hill, you saw a lot of Liz Cheney and the other House Republicans that voted to impeach President Trump. They got a lot of backlash for that decision. In fact, there was a vote to try to remove Cheney from her post as a House GOP conference chair. Kevin McCarthy and a number of other Republicans actually backed Cheney then. However, since then, we've seen that President Trump has continued to attack Cheney and those Republicans that voted to impeach him. And you've seen that Liz Cheney has upped her attacks on President Trump. So I think right now what you're seeing is that Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans believe that their best path back to the majority is sticking with Trump and having someone like Liz Cheney, a very critical opponent of President Trump's in leadership, won't help them. Back in February, when that vote to oust her the first time, it was 145 to 61. So overwhelmingly, they decided to keep her. This time they did a voice vote, so we don't really know who voted what or how, and we don't have that breakdown, that number breakdown. 
Yeah, we don't know who voted uh, to oust her, who voted to keep her, or like you said, how many people voted to oust or keep her. All we know is from talking to sources in the room is that there was allegedly booing at some point against Cheney. She spoke for a little bit, and then the vote happened, and the vote was very, very quick. So Kevin McCarthy and other House Republicans getting a lot of backlash, actually, for deciding to do a voice vote behind closed doors. But we know right now that Liz Cheney is not going quietly. She said at her press conference after the vote today that she would do everything she can to keep President Trump from getting near the Oval Office again. There's a group of more than 100 Republicans that include former officials, I guess some current officials. We don't know any real names yet, former governors, things like that, that are all signing on saying, you know, if the Republican Party doesn't correct itself and kind of loosen Trump's grip over them, that they might try to form another party, a third party, but with a lot of Republican values still, but just independent of Trump. And a hundred, it's not too many. Like I said, some of these are former officials, but you know, it's sending that signal that a lot of people are not happy with the way this is going down right now. Yes, it's absolutely sending that signal. And we won't know until 2022 or even the 2022 primaries when figures like Liz Cheney are up for re-election and when they are primaried likely by a lot of Trump-backed candidates, really how this will play out. I will say the issue with starting a third party is that they don't have the same resources that the Republican National Committee has. They don't have that big party apparatus. So I don't know if they would want to grow to be a bigger party or this would just essentially be them taking some sort of a stand. I think Republicans that voted to impeach or vote Republicans that are very critical of President Trump, they're in a very awkward position right now because, you know, if they're seeking re-election, that's obviously, you know, what they're choosing to do. But they're are likely going to struggle getting that financial backing from some of these major institutions if President Trump still has this grip on the party as we see it right, right now. So people are saying that Liz Cheney obviously is going to be continuing the fight. You mentioned her statement saying she's not going to she's going to do everything she can to prevent Trump from getting near the Oval Office. She's going to be doing speeches, other appearances talking about this. And the president himself, he he spoke out, kind of took a like a victory lap, I guess you could say, uh, just continually call her a warmonger. I think he said she's a bitter, horrible human being, uh, you know, so th obviously the, the president going to take that victory lap there. And uh, there's going to be another vote coming up to see who will replace Liz Cheney. It seems that it would probably be Representative Elise Stefanik. Uh, nobody else is trying to run for that position. So uh, her again, a Trump loyalist will be in installed there as the third top uh, House Republican there. What's ironic about Elise Stefanik replacing Liz Cheney is that if you compare their voting records, Liz Cheney on paper is much more conservative than Elise Stefanik. Elise Stefanik obviously coming from the blue state of New York, though she represents a very conservative district. Liz Cheney is much more conservative and Liz Cheney actually has so many more, I think I would say, you would say conservative credentials than Elise Stefanik, just her being a Cheney, the former, I mean, the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney. 
someone who is seen very much as a conservative champion. So it's ironic how this all has played out. But Elise Stefanik definitely has paved her own path to this point of notoriety and being popular. She is very much responsible. She and her super PAC EPAC or Elevate PAC have helped recruit a record number of Republican women to run for office. But this situation and the optics of Elise Stefanik potentially trying to potentially replacing Liz Cheney is interesting because here you have Liz Cheney, the highest ranking or the formerly the highest ranking Republican woman in the House being ousted because she did not want to tow the party line. And then you have Elise Stefanik, a Republican woman, someone who is very enthusiastic about recruiting more Republican women to run for office. She is pledging to very much tow the party line. So some critics saying that this is a very uh, sad image that's emerging from this scenario. Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The website that this ransomware group uses contains some screenshots of what appear to be and most likely are chat transcripts between the ransomware people and some representative of the police department. Joining us now is Dan Gooden, security editor at Ars Technica. Thanks for joining us, Dan. My pleasure. We've been hearing a lot about ransomware attacks in the news right now, most prominently the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack that's uh, affecting the East Coast and fuel supply out there. We're seeing uh, long lines for gas and panic buying for gasoline. But, uh, you know, we've been talking about ransomware attacks for a while on the podcast, the schools, businesses being attacked. Right now, there's also another story going on. This is separate from the Colonial Pipeline story, but there was a ransomware gang that hacked the District of Columbia's Metropolitan Police Department. They tried some negotiations. It failed. They're starting to release some personnel files on officers out there. So, Dan, tell us a little bit about what's going on in this case. In this case, it would appear that it's a uh, completely different ransomware group managed somehow to um, breach the security of the Metropolitan Police Department network, get in there, and they claim that they stole 250 gigabytes of data, which is considerable. And they have threatened to release things like, oh, the identities of confidential informants and make those available to crime gangs, which would be a major problem, obviously, for the confidential informants whose uh, life or safety uh, would be threatened. It would you know, also uh, you know, pose a big problem for the police in, in terms of getting people to trust them in the future. So far, we haven't seen that happen, but we have seen personnel files of uh, police officers. These are typically files that are compiled when um, somebody is applying for a job with a department. So the types of things that I've seen are things like psychological evaluations, any kind of previous history, answers to questions about uh, use of marijuana or other types of drugs that type of thing. And you know, this is a huge problem for, obviously, for the officers and for the department that, that employs them. And they were even releasing fingerprints, social security numbers, dates of birth, and financial and marriage histories. So yeah, very personal details there. I think some reporting from NBC News said that they were able to track down at least two officers and confirm their identities through all this. 
They said that they hadn't even been told by the department that their information had been accessed. So, I mean, this is going to be some other ongoing problems for the police department. But in this case, too, this gang, this ransomware gang, was in contact with D.C. police. There were some negotiations going on, and that fell through. They wanted $4 million, and uh, police officials, I guess they just said they wanted to pay $100,000, and obviously that wasn't enough for them. Yeah, absolutely. The crimeware gangs are used to getting considerably more than $100,000 for these types of compromises. You know, what we know is that the website that this ransomware group uses contains some screenshots of what appear to be and most likely are chat transcripts between the ransomware people and some representative of the police department. And, you know, you can see them going back and forth. And ultimately, the police department representative says, you know, I'm prepared to give you $100,000 if you don't accept it. And, you know, that concludes this uh, this discussion. And ransomware people say, no, that's not acceptable. And it was shortly after that that the personnel files were released on the website. And this part of it is increasingly becoming the norm because, you know, we heard about ransomware attacks for a long time where they cripple whatever computer infrastructure you have, freeze your files, all that. And basically you pay the ransom just to unlock all that stuff. But now, you know, a lot of people maybe aren't paying some of it in certain cases. And this is the other side of this extortion model where now they're saying, well, if you don't pay us, we're going to start releasing all that sensitive information. So now there's, it's kind of this one, two punch that victims of this are facing. It's a double extortion plan. And the reason for it is, is that if a police department or any other organization is doing their job, they're going to have backups of the data. And that means that there will be a disruption in their operations, but they'll get back to normal and they won't need to pay a ransom in order to do it. All of that calculus goes out the window when you are now talking about publicizing and publishing, you know, highly sensitive information like the, you know, for instance, the identities of confidential informants. So suddenly there becomes, an, you know, an, d- despite having backed up data, which in this case, I don't know if the D.C. police did or did not. But assuming somebody did that, there is still, you know, a major imperative to pay the ransom. And that is to, you know, prevent, in this case, confidential informants from possibly dying or you know, at least being targeted by crime gangs. Dan Gooden, security editor at Ars Technica. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. At the end of the 18 weeks, all 90 subjects in the study benefited, but the people who had taken the MDMA benefited dramatically more. Joining us now is Jeffrey Kluger, editor-at-large at Time Magazine. Thanks for joining us, Jeffrey. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about a, a new study dealing with MDMA and post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. You know, most people might know MDMA as the primary thing that's uh, in the party drug, ecstasy or molly, uh, some people call it as well. But there's uh, some phase three trials that were going on out of the University of California, San Francisco, where they were treating people having long suffered PTSD many, many years for a variety of different reasons. And they found that MDMA really, really helped them out. You know, we're seeing this with other drugs in the same category as well. But Jeffrey, tell us what we saw with this particular study. 
The study was, it went over the course of 18 weeks, and it involved 90 people who had been suffering from PTSD for an average of 14.8 years. So that was a pretty significant period that these folks had been suffering. Over the course of the 18 weeks, they all received regular talk therapy. And in addition, they were divided into two groups. One group over that course of 18 weeks received three doses of MDMA spaced several weeks apart and had therapy sessions then. The other group was given a placebo. Now, before that 18-week period began, they took three surveys, one of which measured the severity of their PTSD, one of which measured how disabled they were by the PTSD, and one of which measured depression. At the end of the 18 weeks, all 90 subjects in the study benefited, but the people who had taken the MDMA benefited dramatically more, sometimes their scores dropping 50% lower than the folks who hadn't taken the MDMA. So clearly both benefited from talk therapy, but the MDMA was a real potentiator in helping symptom relief in people who had been suffering from this disease for a long time. Do they understand why? specifically the MDMA, helps these people? Obviously, if you have PTSD, nobody suggests that you take MDMA on your own or certainly not recreationally. The point was to do it in a therapeutic context. Yes, and there were three key things that seemed to determine the efficacy of the drug. One was that it appears to increase the level of serotonin in the brain, which is a mood elevator and improves clarity of thought and optimism and, you know, a whole range of other feel-good phenomena. Another is it seems to reduce the reactivity of the amygdala, and that's the portion of the brain that processes very primal emotions, often very negative emotions like fear and anger and resentment and disgust. So it dials that down while dialing up the serotonin level. And one third and very important thing it did, which is why it's important to do this in the context of talk therapy, it seemed to make people more pro-social, which meant that they were open to better interpersonal relationships right. and helped them connect better with their therapist, and that yielded better results. You were able to speak to the leader of the study, neurologist Jennifer Mitchell, and she was talking mm -hmm. about the excitement over this, uh, thinking that this could be you know, one of the leading treatments going forward for people with PTSD. Obviously, as the study pans out and, and uh, you know, there will probably have to be some regulatory things changed so that uh, this drug could be approved, but she was very excited right. for the possibility of it. She was very excited for the possibility of it. And one reason is the number of people who suffer from this. Over the course of their lifetimes, about 26 million Americans will suffer from PTSD. And in any year, about 8 million Americans will suffer from PTSD. That is, you know, bigger than the population of many states. The 26 million people who suffer from it over the course of a lifetime is like adding another Texas. And in addition, on average, people are still suffering a full decade after diagnosis. And the main line, the frontline treatment so far, SSRI, selective uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, tend to fail in about 60% of cases. So Dr. Mitchell was really excited about the fact that this could represent a breakthrough.
Jeffrey Kluger, editor-at-large at Time Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.